Welcome to Creative Innovators. I'm your host, Gigi Johnson, and I was excited this week to talk with Mike Butera, who is the founder and CEO of Artifon. They are a music tech company that is designing smart instruments that anyone can play. Mike discussed with me reimagining musical instruments and challenging traditional norms, how we can redesign music as an inherently interactive and casual experience. He's done some really interesting journeys connecting music performance himself and then going and studying philosophy, sociology, and sound studies, going into consumer-facing design and marketing, and then launching his own company, now launching its third product, the Corda, here now in late 2023 through Kickstarter, three times now through Kickstarter. So enjoy this really different conversation with Mike Butera. This show is about people who innovate in all walks of life. And you have innovated or have touched many walks of life so far and connected them together, which I find fascinating. Mike, can you start us out with what you're doing now, what your main adventure is now? So I am currently... Uh, and have been for a while, uh, running Artifon. Uh, Artifon is a music technology company. Uh, our goal really is to reimagine musical instruments as friendly, fun, casual consumer devices, uh, the kind of smart home revolution that we've seen in a lot of other areas we want to apply to music. And that's not really the point. The point is we think a lot more people can have fun playing music than, uh, than have before when musical instruments were designed for pros primarily. And so we want to design instruments for everyone else. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm running the company, I'm leading product design. I, uh, I'm trying to figure out what's next, uh, in the world of getting more people to be creative. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, we are, currently uh, launching a new product that we're really excited about called Corda. And uh, we could talk about that, but uh, yeah, it's a, our latest smart instrument and uh, we're currently going into manufacturing on that. Great. And I want to come back to the Kickstarters. I want to come back to the why these, uh, but why and I'll drag you backwards progressively. Mm-hmm. Why did you feel this company needed to be started? So the year was 2010. I had just gotten my PhD in sound studies. Uh, I was at Virginia Tech and I moved back to Nashville and I was a professor of sociology and philosophy uh, and really enjoying that. (laughs) Uh, Already we've got a woven together journey here, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sound studies and philosophy and sociology. Yeah, for me, it was it was this continuum of thinking through uh, the ways that people want to make the world sound certain ways, which changes by the second. Uh, my dissertation research was around uh, phenomenology, which is kind of this study of not just perception, but your approach to the world, how, um, you know, how the world presents itself to you, how you respond to it, interacting with the world, basically. And uh, I found that with sound, we have all these different ways of controlling our acoustic spaces. Um, We have doors and windows, we have headphones, uh, we can put on a record, uh, we can walk away. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of those are mitigation strategies, uh, you know, adding sounds or masking sounds uh, to to kind of fix your acoustic space. Uh, And so I started thinking about what were the creative aspects of that? How could we get people to change the way the world sounds in a creative way um, rather than in this more defensive, uh, you know, personal space kind of way. And as a lifelong musician, uh, I thought, well, musical instruments are definitely where I'm going to start with that. Um, But then I just basically thought, well, instruments are these professional devices that we expect everyone else to play well. Um, 
at with the a same training, time. With a training process yeah. too, right? With a training process yeah. that is socialized, that is structural, that is an economic device for, for funding the trainer um, mm-hmm. and is and is normalized. One of my favorite things that I've done is I was in at the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in yeah. um, New York and they have an entire kind of progression of musical instruments exhibit, yep. which they also have online. So you can sort of see that these all gestated for a bit and then they locked. Yeah. Yeah. And that's culture. So uh, <laughs> unlock the business. Well, it's uh, also the economics, point. right? Yeah. So that, so that when you start having the sheet music, it has to go with an instrument that sounds a certain way that is part of an orchestration that is part of a normalization. And you're kind of looking to break that. Yeah. Even just the number of notes, um, that, that you're expected to play. Uh, and yeah, I, I do want to think about, you know, the same kinds of revolutions we've seen from technology in other media forms, photography, video, writing, you know, all these forms of human expression that are very fundamental. Um, but now most people don't, they're not intimidated by taking a picture. Uh, they might not think it's the best picture in the world and they don't care. They, they don't say I shouldn't have done that or I'm bad at that. They just take another picture. Um, and that's not the conversation with music. It hasn't been for over a hundred years. Um, uh, and we can talk about the role that co- the copyright law has played in that, that record labels and, uh, the distribution of music scarcity was, was a real problem uh, 150 years ago. Um, but now there is this opportunity to think about redesigning music as something that is inherently interactive and just not as serious or, you know, intimidating or problematic as, as people tend to think it is, it it can be really casual. So that really was the foundation, um, for, for the company. I, I mentioned I was teaching at the time. I had a friend who had been uh, in consumer technology. Uh, so I was in Nashville and, and there was this company there and he, he left and he, we were chatting and he said, hey, we should start a product design firm. And at the time, I, you know, that hadn't been on my radar. I was going to be a tenured professor. That was the whole goal. Uh, and, but I said, yes, and I didn't take the tenure track job and we started a product design firm that designed smart speakers and, um, more tech and culture kind of things for other companies, uh, that did well at, uh, you know, Costco and target places like that. So uh, you were that taught taking, me a lot. I was going to say that you were bringing though, I was going to say you're weaponizing your academic studies that, you know, how people <laughs> think and how people buy and how people experience products you'd been studying and teaching yeah. and embedding in other people's lives where you then built your superpowers to operationalize how people think and, and actually uh, design for I like your problematization here. Because as a sociologist, uh, you know, we're supposed to be, well, at least traditionally rather passive. Now that's always, you know, impossible. Observant only, right? Yeah, right. Um, Not polluting the research stream and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) That's been critiqued enough that it doesn't exist. But, um, you know, general goal is don't actively do that. But of course, the, you know, cultural revolutions of the past you know, a hundred years uh, have, have seen more active forms of social engagement. And so I, I really like your framing of this because I do feel like I'm taking a lot of the critical theory that I learned and taught, um, and looking at those structures of power and influence and cultural capital, for instance, and saying, there's, there's a different way to do this. Um, I don't think it's just democratization from a political kind of standpoint, but, uh, I do think it is a form of empowerment and, and even uh, hopefully a psychological shift that people can have on their own identities as creative, expressive people, um, that you went back to the, you know, origins of a lot of musical instruments. Usually they used the best technologies of their day. 
they were some of the most advanced uh, tech tools of the time. And yeah, they get frozen because we need to formalize things and, you know, create institutions around them and all that. But when they're being invented, they're, they're normally very cutting edge. And this just felt like another moment in history where we could really look at, at digital tech in a new way. Because for decades now, digital music production has allowed people to make any sound they want to. You know, keyboards in the 80s, uh, digital recording, you know, studios in the 90s and onward, uh, laptops, uh, you know, for the past 20 some years. Uh, but the interface, the UI, tends to be very pro-focused. And this was another insight at the sort of founding moment for Artifon was looking at all these amazing, you know, new technologies, but seeing how they're really just designed for pros, the high learning curve on the instrument side, but also on the recording side. And that moment, uh, it was around 2010, the iPad was released and GarageBand hit the iPad. And that was a light bulb for me of saying, okay, all these sounds are available to anyone. This is going to change the way kids, especially think about what they're capable of with music. Cause now there's this free app on their iPad or five bucks at the time that, uh, that they could go in and record beats and be like, I made this beat and that's cool. And that might, that might be enough to get them to feel like they're a creative person. Um, I wanted to focus on the interface. The screen wasn't enough, you know, having to stare at a screen and never be able to close your eyes when you play and not get that muscle memory. I wanted to bring that back into uh, music creation and bring in all the new benefits of digital recording and everything like that. Very cool. And, and we'll come back to this because then part of it is, there is a retail marketplace and expectations and school focus and all this stuff for a sale. I want to hear about, about how, how you've dealt with that. But you, Mike, you started out commenting also that as a musician, so hmm. you as a musician yeah. do play, create. I what? do. Uh, I, so I started on violin when I was eight. I came home and asked if I could play violin because I saw the orchestra at school and really liked it. Um, I, for the first six years of lessons, I never improvised. It was just mm. sheet music. And, uh, and it was often music that I had never heard. I only saw the notes on the page and my teacher would say whether I was playing it correctly or not, but I actually didn't have uh, the original recordings to even play along with, um, which was a, you know, interesting way to learn. Uh, now this and, was where, yeah. where did you grow up? I grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, so just a, you know, normal kind of, uh, grew up in a, in a neighborhood, worked on the farm right next to the neighborhood, grew up in the family flower shop. Um, so pretty classic. Were your parents creative at all or did they do music? So my dad's a floral designer, so very creative uh, in, in that sort of visual material field. Um, and my mom is, uh, she's a painter and uh, has been a teacher and, and things. So very inspiring, um, but not musical. So the theme of you particular. can be non-traditional was there from the beginning. Yes. What did they think that, that Mike was going to be? <laughs> uh, they... They never prefigured that for me. Um, there, there was there was never that like doctor lawyer uh, kind of uh, expectation. Get a I good do... degree and get a good professional field, and life will be your oyster. Yeah, yeah. Um, we liked oysters. We just didn't have that many. Uh, and uh, and so when I said that I wanted to go to college for music and music performance in particular and violin, they were like, great. And they supported me, even though that is not a career that offers many, you know, many opportunities for a professional was, violinist. So what did you think it was going to do? I'm always fascinated it now, then mm -hmm. that when people make a college decision, they're buying a black box and oftentimes don't say, and then when I'm done with that, I see I would do X. So 
it it wasn't about violin for me. I actually wanted to, I actually tried to go for guitar initially, um, but there were too many guitarists and they had room for a violinist. So I went with that. But for me, it was just music. It was, is there a way, you know, I moved to Nashville. Is there a way to do music as a career? And at the time, I really didn't know what that could mean other than be in a band and get signed and do the, the, the normal thing you imagine. The, thing. the yeah. normal thing. Yeah. Um, and I enjoy, I, I did some of that and, and I've, I've done the, you know, the band stuff, the solo stuff, the studio recording engineer. I love that whole world. Uh, but it was also at this moment and this is, uh, 20 some years ago now, uh, when that digital shift was happening pretty profoundly, when I started in studios, we, we were recording to tape and I loved it. I mean, fully analog signal paths, amazing sound. Like I still love it, uh, is a million dollar studio. And, um, and at the same time, that studio had a little room that had a pro tools rig with a computer. And there were all these people making totally new sounds in there in this little room. And then they got a laptop and they did it back in, in their apartments. So, uh, I was seeing that happen at that moment and th that totally influenced me, uh, toward this. So, so anyway, I, I didn't know where it would go. Um, I quickly, you know, fell in love with studios and then found philosophy and sociology. I actually got a triple major. Uh, How the hell? See, that's... Yeah. Oh. Everything seems like a somewhat normal journey until you look and go, wait, 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 how did Mike do that? Because first of all, for most people, they'd have no idea that you can create multiple blended, that you don't have to be in a single journey path. And in fact, most yeah. universities have a structure your own degree journey possible that they don't tell anyone about because can you imagine if half your students were doing that? <laughs> so how did you, so you did three separate but degrees and what yeah. drove you to think this was sane? Well, if we go back and nerd out just a, a few years prior, um, mm -hmm. for some reason, I, when I was in uh, sixth grade, I came home and said I wanted to be homeschooled. And I, I was doing well in school. I had friends, like it was working out, but I, I had met someone who was in homeschooling and they were like, yeah, you get to customize all your work and you get to, you know, go down these paths. And it's, yeah, and I thought, well, this sounds really interesting. And I took a little to convince my parents, uh, but we did. And it ended up that the second half of my, um, you know, formative education years, I was, uh, you know, learning at home and able to build all of these different courses, classes, um, you know, studies in areas that you wouldn't normally get to. And so I kind of broke out of that normal, you know, middle high school mode. So when I went to college, uh, I was able to get in the honors program. I actually didn't have the, the SAT score for it. Uh, standardized testing wasn't one of my strong points. Uh, but I went into the office and I, and I said, Hey, I, I really, yeah, I really you know, want <laughs> to do this. The door. Yeah. And it worked. We, we got in a conversation and I said, said what I was passionate about. And they, they said, well, we'll give you a semester. We'll see, you know, this, we'll see if this works out and it, it worked out. And, and then, uh, luckily that program gave me kind of free reign to, um, piece together these different fields. You had to justify why. So like one of my majors was music production and I actually studied music, composition, performance, business, you know, recording, distribution, like all these Helps different aspects. Helps you at aspects. Belmont because all those were available at Belmont. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah, it was a very unique opportunity, uh, and similar with philosophy and sociology, the two, there was a lot of overlap and critical theory and things, but, um, but I was able to kind of carve out those paths. And then when I got to grad school at Virginia tech, uh, a similar now, did you go happened. right to grad school or did you have any sidebars? I had about a year that I was saving up for it. I was working at some restaurants and things in Nashville and doing music and, 
you know, that kind of stuff. But it was all in preparation to go to grad school. But sometimes it's a good buffer or baking yeah. point or settling out or because you then went right from master's to doctorate, which is a bit of a journey. Now, why? Yeah. Grad, why grad school? Why? Put, I mean, is it the fact that you had this lovely blended thing that would thrive in grad school or that you had gotten distracted? Well, I hadn't from... found sound studies yet. I, I, I went to grad school because I thought I, I wanted to be a, a social theory professor. And that could be in a philosophy or sociology department, but I knew I wanted to do that. Uh, I was especially studying technology and social um, networks at the time. Mm. So, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, this was two thousand eight ish. I started grad school in oh seven, so I, I finished up undergrad in in oh five, and then um, in December oh five, and then yeah, uh, just over a year started grad school the so i went to virginia tech uh the master's program in philosophy there was analytic compared to continental just two branches of philosophy very kind of hardcore logic focused uh, not the kind of philosophy where you just talk about what's on your mind and and see if you can come up with new ideas that was primarily my style so i i was suddenly in this rigorous sort of engineering driven culture at VT, which I learned a ton. Uh, I also found sound studies in the first year while I was there. I didn't know it existed. It was a nascent field at the time. And I read a mention of it in a book on cyber culture studies, uh, that sound had been underexplored in this field. And I was like, oh, and it just, all the lights came on and, you know, all these different passions kind of, uh, magnetized together. Um, so I, I joined a PhD program at Virginia tech that didn't quite exist yet. It mm. hadn't been finalized with the state. It was, uh, it was the first truly interdisciplinary PhD in the country. And it was between philosophy, history, sociology, political theory, things like that. So I was the first student, uh, you know, PhD student in this program. And I was part of getting it, um, you know, I was in those meetings with the regulators or whatever in academia to figure out what it meant. And therefore it was a blank slate. And I said, I want to do sound studies. And they're like, great, go for it. And so I was able to create this whole PhD program around this new field and travel around the world and go to all these conferences and be a part of the new journals that were coming out. And it was, it was amazing. Um, so anyway, I think the theme academically was I, I never, um, I was never interested in sort of finding the boxes to check off or, you know, put on the shelf or whatever. Um, I was always looking for ways to kind of integrate uh, different fields together and, and find something new. So let's cut back to the more current future. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. and <laughs> so, so you've got a past of build it yourself for yourself, blending, exploring, poking some things in the eye that are, are, are traditional. And so then you went, you created, was it salt? where you were then building yeah. company, building lots of different things. Yeah. What bridged you from we're helping, consulting, building, launching consumer products um, to I want to start a company, and then what led into the first instrument, and, yeah. um, and why Kickstarter? So if we could make that yeah, journey perfect. conversation. So... Uh, this was, yeah, back to 2010, that, that sort of pivotal moment. Um, one of the things was it worked, it was working. The, the consulting was doing well. I was able to come up with ideas, uh, like for these smart home speakers that would all connect with each other, work with, uh, industrial designers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, and so on, uh, go to China, go to the factory, oversee production, 
and then see it, you know, actually do well in the market. And so this was all. I'm going to pause. I'm going to pause a second because you've explained a lot of your gestation. Did you have any tech skills at this stage? Did you learn things yourself or did um, so? What was that tech component and where Mm. Because some people build things and do things and they've been taking apart their parents' toasters since they were five Um, or they've been coding forever or they've been doing robot design and building. So so I'm not hearing a building story. This is is this part of the superpowers of your partner? Is this stuff that you learned or trusted other people with? So I I was always yes, I was always taking things apart and, and, uh, you know, as a kid and and onward, um, when I got into studio tech in college, I was repairing gear, building tube, you know, gear and whatever. So I electrically, you know, familiar, but not an electrical engineer. Um, uh, a lot of training, uh, in design happened, from my dad, uh, from floral design, uh, you know, more aesthetically, I would say. Uh, but then, uh, I learned a lot of that hands-on during the consulting phase, you know, how consumer tech was actually built. Um, coding, I always dabbled, but, um, you know, some people, most people are so much better at that than I am. So I've, I've always been able to translate the kind of design intent and understand the architecture of it, but that, that was, that was never my thing. So yes, a lot of trust, a lot of collaboration, uh, with people. Um, and, and I felt like I was, I was discovering that my role was this hub or a translator between culture and product design ways of thinking and in the weeds engineering and just, you know, always keeping that, that strand, uh, connected, uh, because so many products, uh, are either, you know, impossible to build or possible to build and no one wants them. <laughs> and we're so expensive needed, yeah. to build that no one wants it at that price point, right? Yeah, and, exactly. and that in many ways, specialty music instruments, I mean, the ones that I'm aware of with Chapman stick and other things where yes. you kind of go so expensive to both right. build and create and customized and not meant as mass products. Um, that, that's been on my wish list for a while. Well, and let's, let's tag stick. a corner of this conversation in terms of, um, with instruments, what, what are the cultural references or familiarity that people need? You know, Chapman stick is a good example. Um, cool technology. You can make all kinds of sound with it. People get virtuosic in in amazing ways with it. Um, so complicated to play. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just like a theory bomb, uh, music theory. Of like, now I'm going to pause everybody because I I would never have known a Chapman stick other than I was at a small concert and someone was playing it, and I was so blown away by watching total virtuosity. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a unstructured guitar had a baby with a bass, but it's sort of two direction. Yeah, it's like a heart hanging yeah. from a bait. So so it was very much a a cultural mashup. And, um, but uh, simply the, the, the virtuosity, it was like watching a phenomenal heart player where you just watch it and yeah. go, oh my gosh. But I went to go price one. I'm like, going, oh my gosh, that is such an expensive instrument. And it is sort of art. It's almost the opposite of what you guys have been building. Right. Well, and so then jet back to that. So why, why build a new type of musical instrument? Uh, was the question I was asking myself when I got up the courage to say, yeah, I want to start my own company. Yeah, I want to I want to build a new thing. I mentioned the user interface challenge of all these apps were out there, but you don't want to just touch a screen. You want something in your hands. Well, that's great. What should that thing be? And we could have designed uh, a very specific instrument, a singular instrument, like most instruments are singular. You, it's intended to be played one way. You learn how to play it that way, and then you're good at it. Uh, my goal was to create a plural instrument, 
uh, an instrument, we, we call it a multi-instrument, something that you could actually pick up and play in all these different ways. And versatility was one of the goals, uh, because why not? Digital lets you do that. We can build form factors that allow for multiple positions and gestures and playing styles. Uh, so creating this universal musical instrument has a versatility benefit. But there's another even more important benefit that I was really going for, which is approachability. The theory that I had at the time, and we're still playing this out, we're still seeing if this is you know, going to be true in the world. The theory is that if you multiply what a thing can do, then any one thing that it does is less intimidating. Because you pick it up and you say, I'm just going to play some drums. You know what? I'm going to have some fun and pick it up and strum it like a guitar or put it down on the table and now it's a piano. None of those things are the right way to play it. And therefore, you're not playing it wrong. And so creating this universal instrument also has the benefit of giving more people the sense that they could just casually approach it, see what it does, enjoy that, and not compare themselves to the best musician in the world who's so much better at them at this one singular thing. Um, and that's that really was that moment where I thought, okay, this is going to work. Uh, we, we do have a new conversation to, you know, bring to the world of what instruments can be. And, uh, yeah, that's when we started designing what we called the instrument one, which was our first product. It makes me think of Dan Schneiderman's, uh, philosophies of creativity, technology, support tools. Now I'm going to go nerdy mm -hmm. for a bit yeah. where it's like a, the metaphor is a doorway. So you can have a, a, a low threshold or a high threshold a wide doorway that you can stuff many things into it or a tall doorway where you can go to extreme expertise. Mm -hmm. And I always come to a new technology and go, is it an easy entry? Is it a wide doorway or does it have extreme sophistication? It's like me trying to come into, to Photoshop. Yeah. I know I could possibly start Photoshop fairly easily for about five minutes. And then it's mm -hmm. like, wait, I don't, I don't kind of grok it. I'm doing blender right now, which it's like, immediately high doorway wide walls high ceiling but the doorway is so harsh and so you're looking to make it so it's an easy entry but sophisticated uses and wide uses so you're kind of making an infinite doorway that's it's a goal um it's one a of goal. the one of the ways we do that we, we call it scalable complexity in the history of instruments they're based on physics of resonance you know vibration resonance um and uh, therefore, the material, the size, uh, all, all those aspects of it were, had to be pretty fixed. There were some variables that you could add or subtract, but that was it. And even the early days of electric and electronic uh, instrumentation with early synthesizers and things, also pretty fixed. Circuits were kind of baked in. Um, you had the Ande Martineau, uh, one of my favorite instruments, um, where you... You could plug in these different, um, they were like speakers, but they were actually not speakers like we normally think. Some of them were gongs, others were paper, others, you know, were wood. And so it, the, the point was when you plug in the speaker, it's going to sound like a totally different instrument, but it's because of the physics of it. Um, with digital tools, now we can actually create these adaptive devices. And so if we get the ergonomics right, based on simple human forms and averages of hand size and all kinds of things, um, similar to, say, a game controller or a remote or all kinds of other objects we use, uh, we can program these devices to respond differently based on what you want to do with them. We can receive different gestures in ways that we make musical not in the same way. So if you want to strum something versus tap it versus bow it uh, or press it, these are all different gestures that we can program and say, well, now we're going to put it in a sort of piano mode or a guitar mode or a drum machine mode or things like that. And uh, that's actually one of the things that we patented uh, was this concept of the multi-instrument as a switchable responsive device rather than, you know, 
based on one way to play. Um, so that, that was one of the key, uh, you know, founding principles uh, of what we're doing. It's, it's a bit hard to explain. And, and again, maybe, maybe it'll be the, the way of the future, or, or maybe it's a moment in history, but, um, it seems to be working. So the, for, for people trying to visualize this, who are listening to this, that the first one, which was instrument one, kind of looked like a, um, a mashup, a, a long, thin strip mm -hmm. that had sensors on the top that you could, that also had uh, accelerometers and other motion sensors, so that you could take that same essentially bar and play it, hold it up and strum it, move it in space so that it wasn't just taking one of the metaphors or affordance sets, but let you take patterns that you already knew from something else and bring it over. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And we, with the design of the instrument one, it took just over four years uh, to go from idea into product that we could, you know, announce to the world. So a lot of iterations, six different prototype generations in there, a lot of, um, a lot of different ways to look at it. Initially, for instance, it had a dock for an iPhone because docks were really cool, <laughs> which made at sense the at the time, right? It was great. Um, it was great. It was, it was really neat because it became this self-contained instrument that was before Bluetooth was really possible or, you know, even just USB connection more generally. So, uh, so anyway, it, it evolved a, a few different ways. It ended up being a device. We launched it on Kickstarter in 2015. We didn't know what it would do. The design of it was, we, we ended up making it in plastic so we could mass manufacture it. Uh, the sensors were called force sensing resistors. Uh, it was this, this kind of sheet of, of film underneath a, um, uh, an almost rubbery surface that could sense touch and pressure velocity. You could slide on it. It, it, it was almost like a computer trackpad, but, um, but a rubber surface, a little harder to play than that. And, uh, and it had these string features on it. And we did that because in early testing, we found that a lot of the musicians, again, this was in Nashville, a lot of the musicians were very string focused and really wanted that tactile feel of having, you know, muscle memory of, of edge the string. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was not a they mistake. They wanted frets, darn it. They wanted frets. Uh, I know. <laughs> this is not a, not a mistake, but uh, as we talk about corda, uh, it's, it's interesting. We took off the strings for corda, similar form factor, kind of ukulele size bar. Um, but corda has pads, uh, and a strummable area. So instrument one and corda both have those things, but instrument one had these string features again, because musicians were asking for that. Uh, instrument one can do things that stringed instruments can't do that other instruments can't do. Um, every note can have its own distortion or vibrato. Uh, you can apply effects to every little touch. If you press harder, you, you know, you could bring in delay or whatever you want to do, like amazing things. But what it didn't have was real strings. And for those say guitarists approaching this with the muscle memory of strings back to physics, they wanted to, to behave exactly like strings behave. And that was problematic. It was a problem that I think is quite interesting and highlights this, this paradigm shift between physical and virtual instruments. Um, and virtuosity yeah. too, right? I, I, yes. I live off my, my business is being of not having to think about it and being able to create art after years of practice. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Aristotle's notion of virtue uh, has, you know, not quite as much to do with what we think about, like, you know, a, a virtuous person is like really good or, or something. Uh, for Aristotle, it was more like being good at something and, mm -hmm. uh, and having the virtue of, uh, of 
you know, being capable, uh, having the affordances matched to, to what you're doing. And so, um, there's an interesting, just to get, you know, kind of deep on that of the virtue and virtual that we can actually map the same behaviors, the same affordances from the physical world into the, what we now call the virtual world, as long as people have the virtue of being able to use it. And all that means in normal language now is like the capability, or in some cases, just the confidence of reaching out and touching it. If you can strum your hand through the air, and if a guitar is under your hand, you'll strum a guitar. But if you're in an augmented reality environment that can detect your hand moving through the air and you strum virtual strings, it's the same result. And so you have the virtue of being able to strum. The technology is going to determine exactly how that happens, but it might not matter what the inner workings are of it. As long as you get to intend for something to happen and it happens in the end, uh, that is, uh, you know, uh, that's enough. And again, this, this is how I tend to think about product design. Like, can we hide time, a lot though, of the tough stuff? It, people will expect the haptic feedback of the string, right? So that they, mm -hmm. there are still is then they would like that interaction with that. I'm, I'm right now building things in spatial audio and VR. And so yeah. really thinking about what then that response is and how, sorry, we, we could go down so many rabbit you. holes here. I'm with you. Uh, yeah. Let let me let me take you down two rabbit holes to maybe wrap up this conversation and because there's lots of things I would love to talk with you about on this, which is um so one of the reinforcing elements is the retail sales element of musical instruments. You came in through yeah. Kickstarter. You yeah. now have come in with several instruments. So you also um had the and I have to look at my notes, the Orba, which I've yep. I've had my hands on and played. Um but um, very much of a circular modality, mm -hmm. really hitting more the folks who are possibly thinking of it in terms of beats or pads as a different modality and cheaper and handset. And then you've taken that through Kickstarter and you've, you, um, you know, you've taken the current Corda, you had something or have something called Orbicam that's a video also. I was mentioning the, the, uh, the AR stuff didn't come out of nowhere. We we've spent the past couple of years really figuring out what's possible through the camera as a musical interface. Uh, so, and, and the screen itself. So Orbicam, for instance, is an app that you can make music directly in live video on your screen. And there are these pads and you can play whatever sound you want and it'll automatically get baked into the video kind of soundtracking your, your life. Uh, it works with our hardware, but you can also use it on its own. And so, yeah, what we found is the transference of our tech from the physical products into apps, uh, onto a physical product you already own your phone, uh, is all possible. And it's really just, where are you? What do you want to do? You know, what's, what's fun at the moment. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we've been experimenting with AR. We did a big uh, launch with Snapchat last year with artist lenses and ways to make any song interactive, uh, which is really fun uh, using new AR tools and motion tracking, things like that. Uh, and it's all the same thinking. It's, it's a lot of the same kind of UX design that we put into our hardware instruments that we design in the virtual space as well. So... That's that's been really fun. So, given the retail dominance, though the retail challenges yeah. in the current era of retail stores going away, um, so their feeling of fragility and needing to move volume. How in the world do you sell this? Kickstarter has been your friend multiple times now, including recently. Yeah. To me, that's a natural friction and a question with of scale with retailers. That's their ownership spot, right? How do you then get to people and get to the learning complex and getting to uh, people to see this as an option other than by word of mouth and yeah. great Kickstarter marketing? So Kickstarter is really this moment, just the launch moment. It's actually a pre-launch moment. It's when we develop an instrument enough that it works, 
that we can demonstrate it, that we can make music in our case. Uh, three times now, we've brought that to Kickstarter and said, hey, we haven't manufactured this yet. We want to. We just want to make sure you actually want it. Here's the concept. Here's how it plays. What do you think? Uh, and all three times, that's gone quite well. Um, and so we simultaneously were having conversations with retailers, not only in the musical instrument space, but consumer uh, electronics and, and more lifestyle retail as well. The MoMA Design Store, for instance, has been a great partner over the years. Um, retailers increasingly don't take as many risks at launch. They want to see that something has already worked. And so I, I see the two uh, functioning quite well together. They have for us that we've been able to go out to Kickstarter, find early adopters who are like, yeah, that should exist in the world. Let's help you make it. And by doing that, we're showing that there's a demand for this and retailers want to be more in the middle of the adoption curve and uh, or even past the chasm, as they say. Uh, and so we're able to prove momentum uh, in the market uh, with early adopters. That's it's been great for us. The Kickstarter community is awesome. And, uh, and the other fact is we, we sell most of our uh, products direct through our website. Uh, we, we do sell through Amazon as well, but you know, going direct means we have uh, a relationship with our customers. We, you know, we can communicate with them. Like if you buy on, if you buy Orba on Amazon right now, uh, and you don't go to our website and specifically sign up for our, you know, email list, you might not know that we've just updated the firmware and added new features or that there are all these new songs and ways to play them. You know, we, we like to develop this community around our products and it also shows on social media, we have amazing engagement, uh, with people. They, they make little songs, they post them. There's a whole sort of supportive community around just this casual music making. And that's because we have that direct relationship and we're not going through too many intermediaries. Um, that said, we, we have great relationships with retailers, guitar center, and you know, all kinds of people, but, uh, we're really focused on as, as direct as we can get with the customer. Mike, we have covered your highly nonlinear journey. You're putting it together from building your own homeschooling to building your own combination of degrees to building your own musical instruments and companies and products. What have we not mentioned? Is there anything you, as we wrap up that you'd like to mention we haven't touched on? Uh, I think overall for me, uh, the the idea of building a company was always secondary. It, it, it had to be done. Uh, if I was going to pursue this stuff, uh, because I couldn't just, couldn't just build it all myself. I had to work with people who had all these different skill sets. Uh, couldn't just fund it myself. I had to find people who wanted to build this opportunity into a business that could actually make money someday. Uh, and, and I didn't want to do it myself. This it's too much fun to work with other people. So, um, the, the business, the, the corporation is, is a body of people that is this kind of, um, this kind of place where we can all pursue that together. Uh, there are many other ways this can be done. There are awesome open source projects in the world and, you know, all, all kinds of things. And, and in music, you see a lot of that as well. Uh, the, the fact that this is a business also means that there are other realities to what it takes to run it. Um, and that's something I've, I've learned so much about that over the past decade or so, uh, things I didn't know, uh, I wanted to learn just, just the total reality of doing this. And again, I mentioned, I, I grew up in the family flower shop, so I had that entrepreneurial you know, context of just how hard it is to, to figure this out. Um, it's, it's exciting. Uh, but like you said, it's, it's business is also very nonlinear, uh, especially with the economy going all over the place. There's really no sense of, um, that classic stability that you might've had decades ago, where if you build something, it, you know, it, it'll get out there, you advertise in magazines, people will read it and 
mail order your stuff. Like it's nothing is that set now. It's changing by the day. So that's another exciting aspect of this. I'm glad we mostly talked about design and culture and why. Uh, but uh, the vehicle that has enabled this to happen has been an actual an actual business. And that's, um, that's cool too. It's a very different side than I learned and taught in academia about how, you know, capitalism works on a grand historical scale. This is, um, this is how it's working at a, at a product and team level scale, which is, it's, it's been awesome to learn. Excellent. Um, so this episode will go out and be out in the ether. Who would you like to reach back out to you? Oh, um, well, anyone who wants to collaborate on this kind of stuff, um, uh, we are right now exploring a lot of different ways to get artists, uh, content into our instruments so that our instruments become these interactive music devices. We already have all the tech we've, we've done some of that. We want to do more. Um, uh, we're also very interested in multimedia music and we've done some cool experiments there. We want to expand that and see our instruments as controllers for making music in, in multiple senses. Um, so, uh, yeah, just more, I'm just looking for collaborations. That would be, that would be awesome. And how should people best reach out to you? Oh, uh, we, you can go to our website. We have a, you know, general, uh, contact at Artifon and I'm just Mike at Artifon. If anyone wants to reach out. Excellent. And we'll put the various links in the show notes. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was really fun. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024. <music>